Hello everyone and welcome to Anarchy SF, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. By the way, did you know that we are working on Anarchy SF 2.0? <laughs> Because we are, and we hope to launch it very soon with better UI and more features and cool stuff like that. It's basically going to be the same, but it's going to look nicer. And you and improved Anarchy. Yeah, better Anarchy. That's a good thing. I am Eden, and with me, as always, is Yanai. Hello, Yanai. Hello, Eden. How are you doing? How? Today? I'm ah, doing fine because... I you do it. Yeah, you did, you did. I'm doing fine because 2020 is about to end, and as you know, that will fix all of the problems. What's the Jewish saying? Like, let the year end with all of its... Troubles. Troubles, and a new year begin with blessings or something, and it never seems to pan out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe it's blessings in, like, the Warhammer 40k sense, like oh, being no. blessed by the Chaos Gods, with even more plagues and tribulations and <laughs> so on. But hopefully not. Today, we are going to be discussing, as promised last time, a novel by an American author, right? They're American. I think they're American. I'll check. Yeah. An American author, originally from the United States, they now live in Cambridge, UK. And the author in question is Rivers Solomon. And as Yanai said last time, we know their name because they collaborated with Clipping on turning their track, The Deep, into a full novel. And that's also where I first heard their name, although they've been making a lot of noise in the community in the past few years, yeah. nominated for several awards, and also in the center of discourse on places like NPR and other places you would find science fiction discourse like Strange Horizons and so on. And specifically, we are going to be discussing their debut novel from 2017, An Unkindness of Ghosts. Yeah, a very... So I think debut novels are really interesting because they give you insight into what you can expect from an author's work. And mm-hmm. I think I want to read eventually like everything from Solomon. And I think they also have this kind of rawness for the better and for the worse. It's like... This hasn't mm-hmm. gone through the pressure of readings and re-readings. I mean, it's probably been re-read, right? But it hasn't, like, met an audience and the audience responded to it. And, like, it hasn't had this unique set of pressures that kind of standardize a lot of media. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring that up because there's this advice that authors often give to people who ask them how to get better at writing. And it always comes down to many things, but one of the things it comes down to is walking the line between engaging with the genre that you're writing in, but also breaking yeah. from it. So it's not don't read anything from the genre that you write in, because then you won't be aware of the tropes and the language and the discourse happening around where you're working, but also don't read exclusively that or try not to read things that are too close to what you're writing. And I think that kind of speaks to what you mentioned. Like, An Unkindness of Ghosts is definitely of its literary tradition. When we start to describe the plot, you should, if you've read it, and if you haven't, you should read the novella by Ursula Le Guin titled The Birthday of the World. But there are many other generational ship stories out there. It's actually been pretty popular in the last two yeah. decades. And you can definitely hear or read echoes of those stories and styles inside of Solomon's work. But it's also very clear that they, whether consciously or otherwise, steered clear of many of the tropes, or at least inverted them in interesting ways to make the story 
the role, right? And I'm also reminded of Cameron Hurley's mm-hmm. work, and they kind of operate within the same spaces. Cameron Hurley also wrote, oh, it's a generational ship, but here's a twist. In her case, it's biological, like everything mm-hmm. is biological and part of this biological life cycle. And Solomon also has things to say about biology and nature in yeah. space. I think we'll get into that in the discussion, but I think this novel bashes a lot against the frame of what you would expect from a novel like this, from a generational ship story, from sci-fi. So yeah. there's a lot to dig in. Let's give the... Let's set the stage. So we're on board this generational ship called Matilda that was probably named for the Clotilda, which is the last slave ship to bring captives from Africa to the United States in 1860. That was its last trip. And this is like a very famous vessel, obviously. It has a lot of meaning. And I think, you know, naming the vessel Matilda already situates us inside this space that, by the way, if you go back to our episode on clipping, they also kind of inhibit this space of slavery juxtaposed against space travel and a stratified society. So this ship has been... Yeah, I think we can say that one tradition that this speaks to, is in conversation with, is Afrofuturism, right? Which we talked about when we talked about the clipping episode and often like addresses these topics of like slavery on the one hand and like spacefaring and futurism on the other. Yeah, I totally agree. And in this ship, we've obviously been on it as passengers for a few generations, many generations possibly, even centuries, because society has started to obviously stratify away from the original intended structures. Whether they were originally divided by race is unclear, but for sure it wasn't as bad as things are now. Well, lower deckers, the decks are divided alphabetically, and everybody in the lower decks, what's called the tar decks, which is around T and lower, they live in squalor on one hand. They have frequent power outages, heat outages, which kind of reminds us of Frostpunk and Snowpiercer that we spoke about in the past. And also, they do all of the physical labor that keeps the ship running. The ship has a fission reactor simulating a star, which allows the denizens of the ship to grow plants. But someone needs to plant those plants, harvest them, and so on. And that comes with all the dangers that real-world harvesting of those plants yeah. Entailed. And- so we'll, sorry, one, one last thing. We're throwing back here to sugar plantations, yeah. cotton planting, and so on. And the physical dangers of working in those fields. Yeah. And I think it takes some of the book to realize, but it's full on slavery. Like at the beginning, you can say, like, maybe they're just like working class, very poor, have like not as much access to resources, but no, they don't get money for their labor. Their time is managed by you know the people who govern their work they have to appear for like countings and stuff like that it's full-on slavery yeah and just to make one thing very clear the division both of labor and of the denizenship aboard the ship are racialized so there's the middle deckers that are your merchants, your barbers, your doctors, and so on. They're already white, although there some mixed races is allowed. It's frowned upon, but it's allowed to exist. And then at the top, you have the sovereignty, named after the sovereign, who is 
the ruler of this vessel, and the sovereignty is made up of the guard that enforce the laws, and other functionaries, like the Surgeon General, a central figure in the book that oversees the entire medical establishment and performs surgery and so on, as well as the sovereign themselves and other people of those dominating and political mm-hmm. classes. One other thing to point out, the division is also highly supported by a religion. This religion sees space and Matilda's journey as a journey through purgatory, yeah. where sin gets the ship nearer if you absolve it, or farther if you revel in it from the destination. It's supposedly escaping an earth that has been forgotten and probably destroyed by climate change, and it's seeking a new planet on which these people can settle. And of course, those who are responsible for sin and proslivity and gluttony and all that stuff are the lower deckers. They are lazy and sexually promiscuous and gluttonous and so on. And they revel in sin and they are the ones that must be dominated, punished, worked upon by the guards, by the religion to get them closer to the planet. Where, of course, those who commit the most sins in the book are the top deckers. The sovereignty's guard frequently and routinely rapes women from the lower deck. They starve lower deckers. They prevent them from getting medical assistance. They work them in slave labor. So, and this is, of course, commentary on, you know, not just Christianity's, but religion's role in general in dominating and overseeing racial divides and disparity. What? Rigid hierarchy is extremely hypocritical? Yeah, no way. It reminds me of, I think I spoke about this on the cast in the past, but I have so many podcasts now that I'm (laughs) not sure. the The first class that I had in my history BA opened with the lecturer asking, why did Constantine embrace Christianity. So the obvious and simple solution is he had a change of heart, like a real conversion, right? He saw God and decided to become Christian to save his soul. But that's kind of a boring answer because it relies on the personal and we can't corroborate it. Of course, Constantine tells us that that's the case, but there's no reason to believe Mm -hmm. him. Then you think about what did Christianity give the Roman Empire and you understand that it's basically an ideological pinning for the domination of a central power. Because Roman religion was way too promiscuous, right? You could be an ISIS worshiper, and as long as you went out on the right holidays and hailed the emperor, you were fine as far as the Roman religion was concerned. Whereas Christianity has a very strong delimitation, much more than Judaism, by the way, between orthodoxy and heterodoxy, and acceptable opinions and unacceptable Mm -hmm. opinions. And you kind of see it in a kindness of ghosts. This wasn't one of my points, but it's actually pretty interesting. And it's that religion gives you an ideological pinning to say, this is acceptable speech and acceptable behavior, and this is unacceptable speech and unacceptable behavior, because humans need that underpinning to be cool. And there are many other ways to do that. You can excuse cruelty with a bunch of stuff, including economic theory, social relationships, art, and a lot more. But religion is one of the most handy tools to be found and this book does a really good job of showcasing how that works so one last fiction detail about the story the main character is named aster and they are a surgeon to be they are an understudy for the surgeon general 
and they are the only ones in the lower decks that have the technical will withle and the knowledge to handle cases that are worse than just, you know, burns and applying ointment, but to perform surgery, to cure the ill, to brew medicine, and so on. And they lost their mother, who was an engineer working on Baby. That's the fission engine, Baby Sun. And they are kind of slowly unraveling the mystery of what happened to their mother. And what happened to their mother seems to correlate to what is now happening to the Sovereign. Yeah. That is the basic mystery that keeps the story pushing forward. And I really like its resolution. We'll spoil it, but not right now because we're just in the opening yeah. uh, segments. And they're also a very interesting character, Aster. First of all, Aster is star, yeah. right? So there's a bit of imagery early on there. But they are also heavily hinted to be neurodivergent. Yeah. Perhaps on the autistic spectrum. And again, it's not explicitly mentioned in the book, but they exhibit a lot of the traits that someone on the autistic spectrum might exhibit. And to be clear, the book does a really good job at looking at how they are not necessarily disabled, but differently abled. Yeah. Right? Those traits open up a depth of insight, a depth of reading and knowledge accumulation. And again, there are many perspectives on this. Some some people on the autistic spectrum do see it as a disability, some don't. So this is kind of a, a perspective into this topic, which I find fascinating. It also explores the limitations, yeah. right? The limitations in parsing intent and understanding humor and being able to generalize instead of go for specifics and so on. And I think it's very well represented in the Yeah, book. and we talk a lot about how the perspectives that we get as an entry into a sci-fi universe are really important because a lot of sci-fi works ask us to familiarize ourselves with a new universe. So it's really important through whose eyes we see this universe. And Esther is not the only point of view character, but most of the time we see things from her point of view. I think it's her. And I think through her neurodivergence, she brings an interesting way of learning a new world where she has these things that she can't completely understand, but also she has walkarounds and like rationalistic understandings. And it's even a good literary device because it allows her to kind of authentically contemplate things that would have seemed heavy-handed without this framing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely agree. It goes back to what we mentioned when we were discussing Monica Burns' The Girl in the Road about standpoint theory. Yeah. And this idea that a perspective is not just a collection of experiences and worlds, but also an entire universe waiting to be seen and to be understood. And you need to contextualize what's happening through those standpoints in order to understand what is happening. So that's the introduction. I will say one last thing. It's a really good book. Yeah. Like, I read a lot, and I think I've been on a roll for the past 10 years. I've been reading, like, really good books for a long time now. For me, for mm -hmm. myself, right? Not objectively, whatever that means. And this still blew me away. It's, like, one of the best books I've read in the past five or six years. First of all, just on the merit, just in quotes, just on the merit of its writing. It's written extremely well. They have a knack, Solomon. They have a knack in describing scenes, but also describing internal landscapes and thought processes that sometimes is really awkward and they do it really well in this book and i think also on the perspective of the ideas of course i'm not just talking about their believability but also how interesting they are and what they say and how they interplay with each other i think solomon's did a fantastic job on this book there is like some literary criticism i think the third act was a bit 
scattered and dragged on for a bit too long, although I do understand why it was important. And last story point, I just want to say that Giselle, yeah. who is the friend slash, not blood sister, but like adopted sister of Aster, is one of the best characters I've read in the last few years. And love incredible. her, right? Like, that's also... Love Giselle. She is an incredible character, and the resolution of a storyline, which we might get into in the spoiler section, is brilliant and does a lot of things about violence and the power of retribution and the power of standing your ground and so on. So she's a fantastic character, but all the characters are really good, and it's just a good book beyond anything we'll say. Yeah, so let me take us to the analysis segment, and from here we'll allow ourselves to use spoilers. And I want to start with a kind of basic point about something the book does, and we've already mentioned this, is it talks about racialization. So Mm -hmm. what is racialization? It's somewhat intuitive to think of races as things that just exist in the world. We see people, and even if we want to believe that all people were created equal, we see that people treat people unequally, or just treat them differently, or just observe differences between them, and think... It is natural for people to be divided into these categories because of the way they look, because of where they came from. We relate this to genetics. Mm -hmm. In academic discourse, it's more common to speak about people as racialized than as belonging to races, because racism and division into race is a pretty modern invention. Well, I'll just problematize what I just said, because there's not even academic agreement on that. So the idea is this. Of course, people come from different places and have different genetic origins and so look different. But for a lot of human history, this has been a fact that was, well, let's just say... It it was sidelined. It It wasn't as important as other things. Let's say that it was treated differently. People noticed, like, you know, you can read Shakespeare and, like, there's a Nubian there, like someone from Africa, right? Like, it will be mentioned, but it will be thought of differently. Like, Othello is, I think, from some African country. I don't remember the name. The observation that people belong to ethnic origins has always existed, but there's a question of whether the modern concept of race is a continuation of that or something completely new. So one way of thinking about it is that racism was invented to justify the African slave trade. Basically, what you have is an influx of a lot of people in a way that is industrialized and systemic. So slavery has always I mean, as long as we have written history, there has been slavery, but it wasn't as systematized. It wasn't, I mean, there are a lot of systems that were invented for the African slave trade. For example, the fact that slavery was hereditary was not always the case. And the kind of commercial bringing of more and more slaves. So it already existed that when one country would conquer another, they would enslave some of their citizens, but they would not keep coming for more and more slaves. That that just wasn't a thing. So you have this influx of people and you want to basically stop them from, you know, by kind of natural attrition, becoming the same, becoming equal. You want to keep them stratified. And to do so, you start to base a class of people, a group of people on their origins. So this is the process of racialization. I'll just say that some scholars, there's specifically a scholar called Jonathan Israel, he's a UK-based philosopher, who says that you can see racialized people in Aristotle's writing, where he speaks about different people being natural-born slaves. You can see it in 
Christianity's depiction of the other as black, even in the Middle Ages. And you can see it in Britain's 13th century, it would be England, not Britain, treatment of Jews was also racialized according to Jonathan Israel. So in any case, the idea is that you have to construct a race. There's an ideology behind it. Now let's connect it to the interesting way it's portrayed in An Unkindness of Ghosts. In there, what happens is that we're introduced to a racialized society, but it's completely alienated from us because we didn't grow up in the society and we don't think of it as obvious or natural. Mm-hmm. So we get this system of low deckers and upper deckers. And what's really interesting is I saw a lot of comparisons between this book and Octavia Butler's Kindred mm-hmm. because yeah. what both books do is give us a kind of modern outlook on slavery. You have someone with a kind of modern perspective in the world of slavery. In Kindred, it's because someone is kind of being transported back in time to the antebellum south. And here it's because in a way history has repeated itself and we have, again, sugar plantations and stuff like that. So what's interesting here in comparison to Kindred, in Kindred we see, you know, black people and their suffering. And obviously we can relate to the slaves there, but the racialization is something we're already accustomed to because we grew up under white supremacy. By the way, whether we're black or white, we experienced it, we learned it, it is natural for us. We see it as a property of the world. Our entire world is organized around its logic. Yeah, exactly. And in Solomon's writing, what they ask us to do is to get used to a racialized system which is based on where you live in a spaceship. So it's just completely alien to how we think about it. But we're introduced to how for the denizens of this ship, this is completely natural. So we do know that the lower deckers are black and the upper deckers are white. It's mentioned. But that's not the language of the racialization on the Matilda. The language of racialization uses low decker or upper decker. They use signifiers that kind of put you in one of those categories. But I think that's an interesting point, and it kind of ties into something I wanted to mention. Because for me, whenever I read a story about a slave revolt, and again, we're in the spoiler section, so there is a revolt involved at the end of the story, I can't help but think about Haiti yeah. right, and the Haitian revolution against the French occupation of the island and its slavery, right? Because remember, the Haitian indigenous population was more or less wiped out by the first wave of colonizers, as colonizers do, although they weren't entirely erased, they were mostly erased. And then the island was populated by, I don't remember if it was 2 million or 3 million slaves, some ridiculous figure. Prior to Haiti, it was called Saint-Domingue, and we rarely learn about it, but it was perhaps the jewel of slavery. It produced the most money, the most goods, and had the most slaves controlled by the smallest white population across slavery, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a dubious achievement, but the achievement was still made. And then there was a revolt, a successful revolt, one of the only successful slave revolts, and a very interesting and understudied topic. And the reason I bring it up is to discuss this idea of racialization and how capital intersects with it in the sense that often people from the racialized class, that is in this case the lower deckers, or in the case of Haiti, what was called coloreds, right? Mm -hmm. Black, usually men, who were no longer slaves, who might own slaves themselves and might be trades people and might be, they might sit on councils. Mm -hmm. 
they thought that their money and their status would allow them to sidestep the racial system, right? And that happens in Unkindness of Ghosts as well. Not consciously, Aster never says, I am no longer a low-decker, but there is a point where she dresses as a middle-decker, yeah. right? And goes to the top decks. And no matter how much she dresses well, and the company she keeps, which is the goddamn Surgeon General, who is a holy figure, he is called the Hands of Heaven, there is no holier man than he, there is more powerful men, but he is the holiest of the holies, even then, her skin is black, right? Yeah. And she gets treated as lesser than middle decals of white skin, which is the same thing that happened in Haiti. The colors, and again, I use that tone every time because I'm not calling them colored. That was just yeah. how they were referred to in Saint-Domingue. They joined the revolt because they felt their capitalistic and status-driven amenities and privileges were not being maintained by the French motherland. They weren't necessarily interested in slave emancipation. In fact, they were totally not interested in it because their business relied on slavery, right? Mm -hmm. But they thought that France, once the coloreds would ask for change, that France would say, oh, of course, if you're asking for change, you're not slaves, you are upstanding citizens, then we'll enact the change. Of course, what happened was France told them, you're not citizens. Yeah. You're not French. Because there's one thing separating a colored businessman and a French businessman, and that's the color of their skin and their ancestry, right? So the interpolation and the interconnectedness of race and class and capital and gender, which is the point I now want to move to, mm -hmm. is... A very interesting topic. And with gender, it's really interesting because this is also something, and I think we've spoken about it on the cast before, that we sublimate. Right? It's something that is obvious. It's natural. It's like a, a color palette. Right? When we do gendered things, that is, perform our gender or come into contact with other gendered peoples around us, we already have a language coded into us. Right? The mm -hmm. language of the hegemony. Right? The language of the mainstream. It takes work to unlearn that language. It's hard for me as well, speaking now, right? I'm a cis het man, and it takes effort for me to use correct pronouns and also think about things in gendered, a gendered way because you can't, or I can't, just make gender go away, but I'm trying to rethink it in ways that break free of that palette, and yeah. it's very difficult. And the book really shows how difficult it is. Esther has a very complicated relationship with gender. First of all, she has a very complicated relationship with sex. She's had multiple physical procedures performed on her. I'll stop and say that we're probably about oh, to get yeah. into some uncomfortable right. sexual assault territory, so if it's triggering for anyone listening, yeah. this is fair warning. Yeah, not just sexual assault, but also body manipulation and uh, procedures, medical procedures. Very good call. So you're introduced very early to the fact that she has had surgery to remove her reproductive system. Yeah. And also a mastectomy to remove her breasts. And it's kind of presented as just a thing. But the more you read, the more you understand it was a response to sexual assault. Yeah. A kind of way to take ownership back on your body and remove those elements that most communicate with your sex and with your gender because of how society is constructed, right? Well, reproductive organs are tied to gender. 
That's how it works in quote-unquote normative society, right? You were born with a penis, therefore you're a man or a male, yeah. right? The reproductive organ is all that counts, so if you perform surgery on yourself, maybe I can break free of that. But the thing is, she can't, right? The figures in the book keep treating her as gender, even though she doesn't want that to be the case. The only person who shows her any empathy in that sense, is the Surgeon General, right? The person who performed the surgery, and again, he's like, kind of elevated from the rest of the characters Yeah, I guess Giselle also shows empathy in her own way, but... Right, Giselle's empathy is barbed, right? She communicates love through pain and harassment almost, right? Also an interesting character, by the way, if we talked about neurodivergence, Giselle suffers from several what we'd call mental illnesses, right? She has fits of rage, she is at some point suicidal... She has, um, quote-unquote, illogical behavior Mm -hmm. and so on. And that's also a very interesting thing. But running it back to racialization and gender, Solomon does a really good job of showing how all of those things that exist in the realm of the obvious, of the natural, of the language beneath our perceptions, they all swim around in the same mush, right? In the same, like, sublimated space that is so hard to put your hand on and define for yourself and to say, I want it to be yeah. this. And in a, in a better world, right, we'd be able to do that. We'd be able to like reach into the spaces and say, I want to understand my race in such a way, to understand my gender in a specific way, to express it in specific ways without society trying to control that for us. But of course, that's not the case. Society keeps, you know, looking at us through those lenses. One last thing. I learned that for the first time on my own flesh when I lived in the UK Mm -hmm. for two years, right? I am secular. My family is secular. I don't observe Jewish traditions except for the ones that I care about, but I don't go to synagogue. Mm -hmm. I don't pray. I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. And furthermore, I don't look Jewish. Like, I don't have any of the anti-Semitic caricature imaginaries. I don't have a hook nose. I don't have, like, the dreads. I don't wear a yarmulke. And yet, when I spent two years in the UK, I was constantly treated as a Jewish person. I was constantly looked at as Jewish. Because race, in our broken world and society, it's not about what you'd like to present, what you'd like to communicate with, how you'd like to communicate about it, but rather what other people or society wants to do about that thing. So I would get questions like, oh, Eden, you're Jewish, right? Tell us about how Hanukkah is different Mm -hmm. than Christmas. And I was like, I don't know, I haven't celebrated Hanukkah in like forever. Nowadays I do, but back then I didn't. So it was kind of like a first-hand experience of these ideas of race, gender, and and how they mix. Gender is used in so many ways in this book that we can't get into all of them. And I think one interesting thing is that there's a kind of connection between subjugation and turning someone into female. So one thing, as you said, is the way the guards treat Esther. And there's also how the lieutenant, who's the kind of sovereign character, treats the surgeon. Where the surgeon is... A higher up, he's part of the upper class, but he's also mixed race. He was kind of allowed as an exception because he was an exceptional kid, and he was the son of a former sovereign. And the way the lieutenant treats the surgeon 
is implied to include sexual assault, even though the lieutenant is his uncle, so it's sexual assault within the family. And he has a kind of paternalistic way of treating him, seeing him as his property, but also as kind of like his wife. He calls him effeminate multiple times. And he kind of likes that he's effeminate, like as opposed to the surgeon's father who like tried to beat the effeminateness out of him. The lieutenant kind of uses this femaleness as a leverage of power. So it's really interesting the way that, as you say, like gender interacts with subjugation here. I want to take us to a second point that I was really lucky to fall on by chance because there was a talk in my philosophy department's colloquium by a philosopher called Lindsay Stewart, who works in the University of Memphis. Mm -hmm. And she spoke about midwives in the antebellum South. Like, there's a lot of interesting stories about them, and there's fiction written about them. There's an important book called Conjure. And the midwife is a really interesting character in the context of racialization, but also, like, white midwives are also interesting because there's an interesting relation between their knowledge and scientific medical knowledge. What happens is that with the rise of a kind of standardized scientific medicine, there was an othering and a subjugation of other knowledges. And these knowledges included the knowledge of women who had the role of midwives. So Mm -hmm. something that has been true throughout human history is that females gave birth. This has always happened. And it was usually the case that you had these women who were good at helping other women give birth. And they developed a kind of, you know, knowledge, a set of skills, a set of, you know, things they know how to do to treat women. And it evolved into its own kind of medicine because the woman who knew how to help with labor also knew kind of how to relieve pain. And she had some more understanding of the body. So she had this knowledge. And then you have this kind of standardized science, obviously studied by men in that time, coming to indigenous communities, to rural communities, to racialized communities, and saying, okay, now we're going to teach you how to do medicine. And so you take all of these midwives and you put them in nursing school, right? You teach them how to be nurses. I mean, obviously not how to be doctors, right? So you teach them how to be nurses. The interesting thing is that this includes telling them that they can't use their knowledge anymore because their knowledge has not been produced by the mechanism that is, quote-unquote, the right mechanism. And we spoke a lot on this podcast about subjugated knowledges and the way in which kind of the scientific apparatus can be a method of power. And I want to focus on this character of the midwife, and specifically like the antebellum um, African-American midwife, because it's a class of people that used to do the medicine for their communities because there was no access to medicine beforehand, right? They studied it because they had to. And Aster fits into this role really interestingly because the first scene in the book is Aster performing an amputation of a foot. And this is how we're introduced also to the conditions of the cold and everything. And what's interesting is that we see that Aster's role is not just to, you know, perform the medical procedure. She also needs to know how to create a stove to heat and purify her instruments with the tools that she has available in the lower decks. So we know from the beginning that Aster is a surgeon's apprentice. She learned a lot from a surgeon. But the surgeon doesn't know how to start a fire in the lower decks because he never had to. He has access to all the resources he needs. So what she has is a special kind of 
environmental knowledge that is unique to her and useful to her. And we see throughout the book, especially in the way that the surgeon treats her, because the surgeon is not exactly a representative of, you know, a subjugating professional class. He is accepting of the fact that she has her own knowledge. And through his acceptance, which is an interesting decision, right? He could have been a much more like austere figure that doesn't believe in her, but... Much more of the ruling class. Yeah. Through the way that he treats her and through the way that we see how she treats people around her, we see this role of the midwife as someone who has the scientific knowledge on the one hand, but also kind of the knowledge of the community and the context in which she was raised, which is necessary for her work. So the thing about the antebellum midwives is that they were pushed into this role of acting as nurses and there were techniques of subjugation. So one really stark example of this was represented in the midwife's medicine bag, which by the way, Aster also has a medicine bag. And the midwife, when she walked into the hospital to help with the birth, which she was asked to do, she was asked to leave her medicine bag outside the delivery room because Mm -hmm. it contained what was unauthorized medicine. It was quote-unquote voodoo or whatever, right? It was seen as like this unscientific bullshit things. So Yeah, I think more than that, it's almost verboten, right? It's almost forbidden. I mean, it was literally forbidden, right? Literally forbidden, yeah. So it's really interesting how the medical profession restricts entrance. And I want to clarify that I'm not saying that you know, these midwives had this kind of magical knowledge of how to cure things that nobody else yeah. could cure. And I'm not like selling you They're alternative medicine. Noble or savages. Yeah, exactly. It's not magic. It's just people knowing their conditions and us needing to use science, but also kind of trust people in their own context. And the last thing I want to so, say yeah, from Lindsay Stewart's analysis of like the behaviors of these midwives is that they had their own techniques of resisting power. And mm-hmm. one of the techniques she calls the refusal, just saying no, getting out of these nursing courses, uh, refusing to help with deliveries, because they said, if I can't go in with my medicine bag, I'm not going in. That's not right. happening. And Aster uses the power of refusal all the time, which, by the way, makes her a very non-standard protagonist. So if you think about the standard yeah. protagonist in the hero's tale, the protagonist is supposed to refuse the call once, and then accept it because of some condition. But Aster constantly refuses to do anything that someone tells her to do. The place where you think you see the call is when the surgeon tells her that he needs her help to cure the sovereign because the sovereign has this illness. And you think, oh, this is what the book is going to be about, right? Like this yeah. woman from the lower decks is going to have to treat the sovereign. But then, and she then says, he just dies. Yeah, he just dies. But before he dies, she just says, no, she's not going to take no. him. Fuck him. Right. And, and she says that over and over again, yeah. Yeah, and you think like, oh, something's going to happen and make her treat him or something. Like, no, he just dies. And yeah. and this is a recurring pattern, which makes a really interesting protagonist. She is active. She does do her own thing. But when people ask her to do things that seem reasonable, that seem like they will promote the plot, she often just refuses. It's an instrument yeah. of her maintaining her power. I totally agree. And I think it's fascinating that you went towards the direction of the midwives because it really connects in interesting ways with my second point and it's also interesting that you got to hear like a lecture in person when i'm about to talk about one of my friends 
mm-hmm. uh, someone who I'm very privileged to call a friend. I'll get to her stuff in a sec. Let's talk about the topic first. The thing about control of midwives is that it's not an accident that it was midwives that were controlled. Of course, other forms of medicine were controlled as well, but not just the West, but in general, when you want to control a population, one of the first things you can do is control their reproduction, right? That's obvious. It's a biological truth. And also, it's a very intimate and important and dangerous to your health a very all of those things really merge in the situation of childbirth right and reproduction in general mm-hmm. so if you as the powers that be are able to control those conditions you have exerted your hegemony into the most private and low resolution spaces of a person's life yeah. right and you see that everywhere you see that in slave colonies you see that in quote-unquote, the metropole, so France and Germany and Belgium and England in the home states as well. The control of specifically women's bodies, their reproduction, and their health is synonymous with the control over capitalist forms of production, power, violence, and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, another leg or angle of this triangle that I'm painting is the other part of genesis and creation which is food. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, to create something, to create anything, to work, to produce, to craft, to do anything, you need to eat. Yeah. Take a look at it from the biological perspective. You need to insert carbon-based life forms and break it down into energy <laughs> so that you can do all of those things. So if I control food, and under food is also included water and drink and sustenance in general, then I have once again exerted my control almost entirely over you. Gerald Diamond, as flawed as his research is, has a really good name for it. It's called hydraulic tyranny. Mm-hmm. If I stand upriver from you and I threaten to close the dam, you will probably do what I say because you need water to survive. Yeah. But it's not just about supply. It's also about the forms in the preparation and handling of that food. So one good example is just prior to the great expulsion of the Jews from Spain, a series of laws back when Judaism and specifically converts to Christianity were a problem, a problem that the expulsion then solved, there were guides to how converts should comport themselves to make sure that they are actually Christians. And like 20 of the 50 maxims and principles were about food. The preparation, the ingestion, and the ritual surrounding eating. Mm-hmm. both to break down traditional laws of kosher food, but also to ensure that families eat together so you can see who doesn't pray, the type of food that is ingested because certain types of meat were considered to encourage sin. So how do you prepare the meat? How do you cook it? And so on. Now, a very interesting person that I am extremely privileged to call my friend that is looking at these intersections is, and I'm going to say, I'm going to use her full name because... There are people online pretending to be her. I'm not joking. It's a crazy story. Her full name is Luisa Prado de O. Martins. Mm -hmm. And she is a Brazilian researcher with a PhD. She's currently based in Berlin. We met around Republica and my work with the Utopia Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And she does a lot of really interesting things. She looks at excess and kind of like postmodern pastiche. She does a lot of work with websites and video art and stuff like that. But she also deals both with food and with reproduction, specifically with birth control. So recently, for example, she hosted a series of dinners where she cooked all of the food with herbs and spices that are also used in indigenous birth control. Mm. 
and she kind of interrogated that space and the tension between something that spices food, but something that also controls your body and specifically women's reproductive abilities. And what she shows to a very interesting degree and really fits in with the narrative around midwives is this need for modern society, aka Western, white, capitalist society, to control excess. Mm-hmm. And the reason they need to do that is because capitalism is inherently about excess. It's about constantly maximizing growth, constantly wanting more, whether that more is needed. But capitalism needs to whitewash that. It can't just embrace it, right? Going back to my 40K metaphor, they're not like, they're not worshiping this chaotic God that just keeps feasting and getting fatter. They don't want to think of themselves that way. So excess needs to be controlled and maintained. Now, the indigenous perspective on excess is completely different. Excess is not something that is to be controlled, but something that is to be managed, Mm -hmm. right? Something that is not to be limited, but something that is to be used in a proper way. So, for example, there's less emphasis on the one true solution, right? This is what you take for this illness, end of story, goodbye, which is how the Western medical establishment often looks at disease. Oh, you have X, Y, Z conditions, take medicine, Y. Whereas an indigenous perspective would look at your psychological state of mind, your diet, the climate you are in, the pressures that are on you, and yes, also your body and its pains and its symptoms. And it would recommend a myriad of solutions, right? Rather than this one solution. Now, guess what? Western medicine is starting to understand that that is the right course, right? That medicine can be personalized to the individual. Yeah. Right? Like, I react, forget allergies or side effects Mm -hmm. that might manifest, I might not be cured by the medicine that will cure you because my genetic material, because the fucking bacteria in my stomach, my skin is different than yours, mm-hmm. right? So we need to tailor our solutions to the individuals. And Louisa does really interesting work in looking at these ideas and connecting them with food as well. And food plays a huge part in an unkindness of ghosts. Because first of all, there's descriptions of food. And I think this is where Solomon is again influenced by Ursula Le Guin, yeah. who often had these really long and sumptuous, by the way, descriptions of food. They would always make me hungry because <laughs> they sounded so good. And here as well, like there's dumplings with all sorts of fillings and there's all sorts of these like potatoes and how they cook them. And the process is, first of all, women's work, right? And it is contrasted with the work on the field. Yeah. It's labor that they want to perform because it allows them to control something, to control what they eat, to control their bodies and how they react and how they are. They get something out of that labor, unlike, quote unquote, the dead labor of the fields where they get nothing. Yeah. It's so abstract. They don't even eat that stuff. They take some stuff from the field, but they grow a lot themselves and they merge it, kind of like when Aster makes the medicine, mm-hmm. right? they merged it into new formulas and into new ways to be. And of course, one of the first things that Lieutenant does, which is the villain of the novel, when he takes control of the sovereignty, is dictate their diet. Yeah. And specifically with the same language that the West has always used to dictate indigenous diets. Enough with all these spices, enough with all this rich food that we can go into complete medicalization of discourse right it gives you vapors yeah 
it makes you humid and your brains become cluttered and so on. And it comes with more prayer, more control over their bodies. So I think Solomon really interestingly interrogates the spaces, you know, overlapping between these things. Last thing I'll say, don't count on my words to explain it because it's a really interesting and very complicated subject. I really recommend you go and check Louisa's website. She has like a lot of work there that was recorded, both audio and visual stuff. Louisa-Prado, that's P-R-A-D-O dot com. She has really cool stuff that will do a much better job than I did in representing these complexities. Or Hidden Kindness of Ghosts, right? It also does a really good job in talking about these topics. I'll say that we're introduced to the kitchen in the book through excess, right? Because Astel sneaks in to steal food. And interestingly, her aunt, I don't know if she's her literal aunt, I don't remember, but she's called Aint, I think. That's the slang in the book for like a... It's great aunt. Yeah, great aunt. And but uh, it's applied she's like a matron, right? She takes care of all the children and she's like an aunt in that sense. Yeah, and her role of managing the kitchens is like an extremely important community role, right? And it is a role that goes through the pleasure of food, goes through like how, you know, the space of the mess hall is a space of preparing yourself for a hard day in an area that you can control that is mm-hmm. managed by you. So yeah, that's an... That has pleasure. I think pleasure is really important here, right? Both for the sake of control, like controlling the pleasure that happens to your body, which also is connected to the question of sexual harassment, right? And I think Aster and Giselle both say many times that like they wish they could experience sex as a good thing yeah i like something that you choose to have i think in specific there's a specific passage where astel says all i wanted or all giselle wanted i think she's talking about giselle is for hands to touch because they were asked to touch oh yeah i cried reading this and i don't cry a lot while reading yeah it was the scene of her death because right giselle commits suicide and she stabs herself in the stomach rather than let herself be executed by the sovereign and the sovereign comes in and pushes the knife in in the final act of like disrespecting her body you know taking away from yeah. her kind of autonomy over killing herself it's really right, heartbreaking it's really heartbreaking i think solomon does a great job of talking about the knife as another penetration yeah right and she specifically giselle specific or Astor says for giselle specifically she wanted to be penetrated only by what she invited in yeah right and that goes back to food right that you invited into your body for pleasure that's one thing and the second thing just to like put a nail on it and then also sneak in my third subject (laughs) before we run out of time power and hegemony they want to control these flows right what flows out in the sense of babies and also semen by the way we didn't talk about Mm -hmm. it but there's a lot of interesting things about control of male ejaculation Mm -hmm. in the control of capitalism and hegemony and it's also super racialized that's one flow but also the internal flow right what goes in in the sense of women like who they get penetrated by or what they get penetrated by but also what they eat what medicine they consume and so on so power wants to be the barrel wheel right what closes off the flow and part of revolution this explosive and it's not by accident that i use the word explosive it is an untying of the bulkheads right it is a lifting of the dam there's something emancipatory about it and that's why so often revolution is connected with spontaneous joy 
Yeah. Right? You burst out into the street. If you read accounts of the French Revolution, a lot of times the language used is they poured onto the streets from within their houses, right? Like water, like a flood, something that is being released. And oftentimes that also included food. Yeah. Right? Breaking into stores, eating bread, eating meat, eating all those delicacies that the elite kept to themselves. This also happens in the book. When the revolt hits, it's a physical wave of people smashing into the guards, right? The dams are cut loose. Mm-hmm. And I think Solomon does a really good job because it's really subtle. Yeah. Right? It's in the description. There's tension. There's pressure. There's things that are being kept inside. And then the moment of revolt is the moment of release, the moment of freedom. So I think that's a really interesting juxtaposition, you know, between what I call the pneumatics of power, mm-hmm. right? How you control pressure, its application, its release, and its stoppage, and so on. Yeah. Matilda is a literal pressure cooker, right? It feels yeah. constraining. Yeah. It feels like you're trapped in this small space. And, you know, the spaceship is huge, but it, it also like really limits where you can go. And I think you're right to talk about pneumatics, about how... There's definitely a level of pressure. Do you want to expand on this idea of pneumatics or are you... Yeah, sure, I can expand that. I mean, I think for me, it goes back to pneumatic psychology, Mm -hmm. which is like one of the only things I think that is worth keeping from Freud. I know there's a lot that is not worth keeping, but this idea of our psychological energies as a system of flows is extremely interesting. First of all, it destroys the binary, right? It's not that I'm like angry or sad or loving or hateful or depressed. It's like water. It's like a sewage system. It's a bunch of things at the same time. And rather, let's talk about the intensity of a flow. When I'm really angry, we can say that the emotion of anger is flowing powerfully through me. Now, neurosis and mental illness and stuff like that comes with something is stopped up, right? One of the pipes gets blocked because we don't want to think about it, it's painful, or because society tells us that we can't express the flow in that sense, right? We're overflowing. One of the best examples I can think of is tears. Mm -hmm. As a man, you're not supposed to cry. And also other people, not just men. If you're in a public space, crying is something to be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And you need to wipe away the tears. Wiping away the tears, like, okay, confession time. When I talk to people and I'm helping them and they're crying, I, like, physically ask them not to wipe away their tears, mm-hmm. right? Because there's something healing about letting things flow out through your ducts. And one of your ducts is your tears, mm-hmm. your tear canal. And it's really important to let those tears go. Let them flow instead of trying to keep them in. Because then the emotion is kept in as well. Why am I talking about this? might sound weird. This all connects to revolutions, as I said. Deleuze and Derrida to an extent, but especially Deleuze and Guattari, talked about this idea that capital also has flows. That's a mistake that a lot of people make. Being rich is not about the number you have in a bank. Mm -hmm. Having a number in a bank is like a lake. The money pools up there, it gathers there, but the power is in the flow. Where do you take that water? What do you do with that money? When money moves, when money flows it gains power. Marx would say that it's all in the transaction value, right? Mm -hmm. In what's being traded and how labor is made vague by the trade value of an object as opposed to the labor value of an object. But Deleuze takes it one step further and says, 
it's not just about cost. It's also about resources, manpower, ideas, and language. All of these things flow from a source to a different source and then flow back. Hegemony, Powell, wants to be, like I said, the arbitrator of these flows. Mm -hmm. And the problem, and this is where it gets Hegelian, although I just said that and multiple philosophers would crucify me for saying that, it gets a bit Hegelian. Think about waves. And think about when waves lose control. So I don't know if you've ever, like, held a tray filled with water because you were washing it, and you tipped it just slightly to the left. But then the water smashes against the left side and reverberates back to the right, Mm -hmm. and it accelerates. And then it hits the left, and suddenly you have a spillage, even though you moved it just a bit to the side. Deleuze and Guattari say, this is what will happen to capital. The more things flow the more they're allowed to accelerate, the more they're allowed to gather momentum, and at some point, it will spill over. And that's where we get accelerationism, right? Mm -hmm. Accelerate the flows, make capital more and more and more and more until that access breaks down. Now, you can disagree with that or agree with it. I don't agree with it. I'm not an accelerationist. But it's a very interesting way to look at things. And in Solomon's case, in Unkindness of Ghosts, I think they do a really good job of making it physical, Right, making it about the body. Yeah. Another thing that bothers Aster is access, physical access to spaces. If you envision Matilda as a series of pipes, Aster is the fluid moving through it. Yeah. And what blocks her is power. Power says, you can't go here, you can't go there, unless you have a pass. Sometimes she tricks power. She has a pass from the Surgeon General. Sometimes she forges passes. But other times she studies the ship better than power and finds all the ducts and inroads and so on. Yeah. And in the end, her knowledge of the space is what allows the revolt to succeed, right? She puts the people in the right place to create blockages that power can't unstop and suddenly they control the flow. One last thing. Wow, I should write a post about this because it's super interesting. I just realized how interesting it is. Think about the barricades Mm -hmm. of the revolutions of the 19th century. That's basically what the barricades were doing. They were controlling the flow of power in the form of physical bodies through the streets of Paris and Berlin and Rome and so on. And what was power's response after the revolutions? Boulevards. Mm -hmm. Knock everything down. You know, Baron Haussmann, it's a cliche at this point to talk about him, but that's what happened. Like, destroy all these small streets. Give me veins. Give me arteries. Give me these open spaces for which I can move police and army forces without being barricaded. So give me control over these pneumatics of power. Yeah, an interesting thing about Aster is her ability to kind of slip away from attempts to restrain her. It doesn't always work. She gets caught sometimes, which sometimes leads to terrible yeah. results. But the interesting thing, it kind of reminded me of being in the army. And being in mm. boot camp specifically, where one advice I got was do whatever you can to not be in the boot camp's schedule. So yeah. go to the bathroom, volunteer to do a thing that other people aren't doing right now because you're off the schedule and then they're not making you run from one place to another all the time. And what Aster does, like Aster, I think, has one shift of actual labor in the whole book. Because yeah, she yeah. always has a past. She always has a place she's invited to be in. She has this kind of superpower of being slippery, of 
whenever you try to grab her, she has like an escape route. She has a plan of where to go. Again, does it always work? And it would have been kind of hypocritical if it always worked. But that's her kind of method of dealing with oppression. And I'll cite the most kind of horrendous example of this in the book. And this is a specific trigger warning for rape. She expects to be raped, like, because she's in this society. And she has a vaginal mm-hmm. cream that she puts on so that rape won't hurt as much. Which yeah. is, like, the most horrid example of this idea of, like, allowing things to flow to minimize control over you. Yeah, for sure. And I think also it's interesting, horrible, and interesting, like, she expects the rape, not because she knows where it will happen, but she, because she expects to be stopped. Right? She expects the flow to stop and then for power to take control and again penetrate her against her will in order to assert its dominance. Okay, so right? we're at the lowest point, so this is time for my third point, which is going to be a bummer. Yeah, take us home. This is the most caveats you will ever hear in a segment by me. So there's a theory called Afro-pessimism. It's a theory in African studies, in philosophy of race, specifically the name that's often connected to it is Wilderson III, Frank B. Wilderson III. And the most simple way to explain the idea is our society is built upon anti-black violence, violence against black people. Mm -hmm. That is the engine of our society. And it's a kind of irrefutable fact, unmoving force, like you can't change it. So that's the basic. I'll say a couple of things more about it, but I have to say this is contentious and rather modern, and not all philosophers of race agree with this theory. I'll mention some problems with it, and in the description of the episode, I'll include a couple of articles, one of which is critical and one of which is just a depiction of Afro-pessimism so people can read. And I want to say I'm going to say how we can read this book through the lens of Afro-pessimism. I'm not saying that, quote-unquote, Solomon is an Afro-pessimist. That's not for me to say, and I can't just say it by reading the book. It's just a lens to look at something. So it sees most relations between black people and non-black people as relations of subjugation. I think it's Wilderson himself who says he is married to a white woman, and a white woman, a white woman, and in a way, their relation is a relation between a slave and the master. And he sees a lot of the world through this lens. It's called Afro-pessimism because in a way, it's not expecting these things to change. And it's very distrustful of revolutionary potential. It wants us to acknowledge that damage has been done to black people that cannot simply be you know, change through reform or even through revolution, perhaps. And by this recognition, we are supposed to, I don't know, understand our reality. And then we can decide how to live in a reality in which black people have been damaged in this way. So the criticisms of this theory see it as reductionist. So it's reductionist in that it doesn't consider the interaction of class and race, that You have black people who benefit from capitalism, that different black people have different experiences, some of which have more power. And again, I'm not taking a stance, just like suggesting two sides of an argument. 
So why is Afro-pessimism interesting in relation to Solomon? So we talked about, when we talked about clipping, we talked about Afrofuturism, this idea of potential of liberation, of continuation of blackness in space. And we talked about in Clipping's album, we have this slave who kind of escapes society and finds the place where he can at least be kind of free in his own way. And that has like liberatory potential. I think there is something like deeply pessimistic about this book because it's saying, oh, we're going back to slavery. And like one of the things about Afro-pessimism is that slavery never stopped. It's always, I mean, it's not always been the case, yeah. right? It started at some point, but since its beginning, it has just morphed the way it expresses itself, but it hasn't stopped. And it's really depressing to read a story where slavery just like comes rushing back full stop, right? We just have slaves again. Or maybe we never stopped having slaves is the right way to say it. And that's, I think, an important part of the book. And then, okay, once you start that, you start like this lowest point. What is the book about? There is a revolution in this book. I think it is downplayed in a sense. We don't know how successful it was, whether they managed to like seize power. It's a backdrop. Yeah, it's a backdrop. And there's even an episode that says like, it would be simplistic to say that Aster started this revolution. Like... The revolution yeah. happened and yeah. she was there and she had a role, but it's kind of an admission of like, this story isn't going to go into all different sides of this revolution. It can't. And we don't know how successful it was. In the end, Aster manages to escape the ship herself and yeah. reach Earth, maybe. But we don't know what happens to like everybody. And the interesting thing, by the way, is that Aster's whole plan is to turn the ship around and go back to Earth. Which, just imagine, like, the only revolution we can think of is just, like, turning time back a couple of hundred years. And hoping, without knowing, that the Earth has been resuscitated. Yeah. We have the final episode yeah. where Aster lands on Earth with an already dead Giselle and looks at this, like, strange planet that she's never seen. And it's really ambiguous. It's really, like, is there liberatory potential? Yeah. So, in that sense, I think it's pessimist and it's in conversation with Afrofuturism, right? Like... Should we have these... I mean, it's weird to think of that clipping album as optimistic. It's not very optimistic. It's also very critical <laughs> of the society we live in. Yeah. But should we have a vision of the future where slavery is over when we don't currently live in a society that is trying to abolish slavery in its current form? It's not even progressing yeah, towards the, it. Yeah, exactly. It's not even getting better. Yeah. Like, you can look at the prison system. I mean... Just read the new Jim Crow. You don't know like yeah. how slavery is still maintained. I mean, it's a good book. You should read it. So that's a bummer, but the book isn't a bummer book. And what I think Solomon is kind of saying, again, I don't want to say that they're Afro-pessimist. I just want to say what they're saying is after we recognize that this is the reality of black people, life continues. And mm -hmm. we make of life what we can. And it's interesting that you brought up Joy earlier because Joy was a problematized idea in abolitionism. There was a point in which the anti-slavery, the abolition movement, was very against African joy because they wanted to portray African-Americans, or the slaves actually, as always suffering, as just these sites of eternal pain, as only capable of suffering in their position because that would be the ultimate case for abolition, right? Like, we have to yeah. end this suffering. But the resistance to that is black people can't sit around and wait to be liberated and then start their joy. 
joy has always will always exist alongside oppression and that's the interesting thing about Aster is that she's a really erotic character she really feels I mean she goes through such terrible things throughout this book but she also experiences a lot of joy a lot of physical pleasure like you said the pleasure of food the pleasure of touch there's a lot of descriptions of like the surfaces she likes to touch and feel and the rhythms that she likes to apply during her walking and it's a real there's a connection between this pessimism and introducing joy and i think just to like zoom out a little bit and say I think this is also important in the general context of anarchy or left-wing philosophy, where we say, let's not think that there's going to be a revolution in like five years. I mean, is capitalism ever going to end? I think yes, because history is eternal. Capitalism won't be forever. But we can't wait for the end of capitalism to start doing our revolutionary work or to experience joy. We need to experience joy. We need to resist capitalism in our current lives under capitalism. And I think maybe you can say a little bit about Desert, that is a kind of manifesto that makes this point about anarchy. didn't just reference Desert at the end of this episode, right? We can do like four episodes on Desert. I just mentioned what it is and maybe we can make an episode about that. Yeah, Desert is an anarchist text published anonymously, can be found online, that deals with anarchist responses to climate change. And bad responses, good responses, what's going to happen, how we should think about it. But maybe to, to wrap everything together. One of the mistakes that people make is by disconnecting capital from the mundane and actual world. Right? Capital is not a chaos god. <laughs> it's not an entity from beyond time that is haunting us. It is practices, the control of practices, hegemony, forms, cultural norms. It controls our emotions and our food and our sex and our flows and many other things. And yes, there is a need to organize and be together and make things happen on a global scale and we do need to, capital letters, defeat capitalism. Hmm. But let me clue you in a little secret, by which I mean it's not a secret at all. If you show up to protests because you need to, because you have to, because otherwise you feel bad, if you try to organize labor because otherwise you'd feel like you're failing, to which I mean to say, if you engage in revolutionary activity out of a lack, mm-hmm. then you will fail. You will fail because you won't be able to sustain those actions. You won't be able to keep doing them because when you scratch the itch of guilt and of necessity, it goes away. And you can keep scratching at it. It will always return, but it doesn't stick around. Instead, we need to figure out how to show up to protests and how to fight back and how to organize from a place of joy. Mm -hmm. Joy in the work. Joy in the work that is to be done. Joy in resisting joy in eating, in cooking differently, joy in consuming differently, joy in thinking differently about gender. And that's something that River Solomon does through Aster. Like Yanai said, Aster loves to say no. She doesn't say no because she has to. 
She doesn't say no because she doesn't have a choice or she feels guilty. She revels in saying no. It's so palpable through the writing. She gets a kick out of it. It excites her to say no. That's where we want to be, right? We want to resist because it gives us joy to resist. Otherwise, we will fail. And, you know, going back to history, I'll stop with this quote. There's an interview Mm -hmm. that someone gave in the 1850s to a woman who lived through the revolution of 1848. And she says in the interview that she knew the revolution was coming before it came and she was able to stock up on food. And the interviewer asks her, how did you know? And she said, well, everybody was singing in the street. Mm. There's a reason they sang the Marseillaise. There's a reason they sang as they revolted because it's an explosion. It's a release. It is a joy that you need to let out. And I think An Unkindness of Ghosts does a really good job in exploring how to let out that joy in the face of pessimism, right? In the face of hopelessness to get a kick out of refusing anyway, of saying no, even though it's pointless, even though you're powerless, you can still refuse. Yeah. So that's that. Next time. What a productive, thoughtful book. Yes. Incredible book. Just to reiterate, please read this book. It is very, very good. I need to read The Deep. And I also can't wait to see what other stuff Solomon publishes. Yeah. One of the most exciting voices, I think, today in science fiction. Yeah. Great. Next time, we will be discussing the movie Elysium. Yeah. Published in 2013. It was produced and directed by Neil Blomkamp, who also did District 9. And it stars like a list of celebrities, Matt Damon and Jodie Foster and so on. And if you've never seen it, it's about a ravaged climate change ridden earth and a space habitat called Elysium where the rich live far beyond the filth of the poor. So you can watch the film so that you know what we're talking about. Uh, Do you want to tell us if you've been reading anything interesting? Oh, I have. I have been. I've been reading something very interesting. The episode is just really long. <laughs> and if I start to talk about Mordieu, mm. I will talk for hours about Mordieu. Because Mordieu is a book written by a guy called Alex Febby. And it's fantasy, but forget everything you think that tells you about <laughs> fantasy. There's a story about a boy, Nathan, who lives in the slums of a city that is constantly under assault from the sea. And the slums are inside the living mud which is a mud that is spontaneously creating life. Horrible, inefficient, butchered life, but constantly making life. And Nathan sells the freaks of nature from that mud for money for food and for medicine for his dying father. And of course, Nathan has magic. He can, like, spark the mud and create new life from it spontaneously. And then it escalates, he meets the master, who's the guy who runs the city, and it's all a parable for capitalism and class society, and it's extremely good and extremely disturbing. Just spell the book for us. M-O-R-D-E-W. Cool. What about yourself? So I've started reading Jason Stanley's How Propaganda Works. Jason Hmm. Stanley came from linguistic philosophy, and he's a kind of leftist philosopher i think he's a leftist he criticizes liberalism from the left a lot he doesn't call himself a leftist a lot though and what the book basically argues for is that philosophy likes to idealize things and it idealizes language to claim that language is used mostly in a kind of 
free association of ideas, whereas in reality, a lot of language is used for power in undemocratic ways. One way of thinking about anarchism is the desire to have a truly democratic society, one that is actually ruled by the people. And if you want to have a democratic society, we have to think about what we're going to do with propaganda. We have to theorize propaganda. We have to understand how it works and what can be done about it. So that's very interesting. I'm only in the beginning, but it's promising. I can also recommend his Twitter feed. Yeah. I follow him on Twitter and he has some good stuff. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening. Yeah. As always, if you want more science fiction, you can go to anarchysf.com and hopefully soon it will be shiny and <laughs> new and easy to use, easier to use. Yeah. There's a bunch of stuff there. Seriously, I will die before I like read 10% of the <laughs> stuff that's good on that site. And we will see you next time. Yeah, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.